David, and it's the summer of David, and if uh, the way it's going, it's turning it into the year of David, but anyway, we've been doing a series on David. <laughs> this is David, this is our 10th part of the series. David is an important figure in the scripture. Jesus is called the son of? David. Jerusalem is called the city of? David. The star on the Israeli flag is called the star of? David. Right, so you get the point? He's pretty central in the scripture, and the reason that he's central is he's a guy who, the Bible would say it's like this, I'd say it like this, he's a type of Christ, which means through David's life, some of the nature of God and some of the nature of Jesus is, is, is revealed, and you'll see that. And um, David was chosen by the Lord mainly because David had a heart who wanted him. God says, I'm going to go and find a man after my own heart. And so people say, oh, that's a guy who has a heart like God. No, it's a guy who wanted the heart of God. That's the difference. He pursued the heart of God above his own. That's, that's what David wanted. It's not what I want, it's what's right to God. It's not what I feel, it's what's right to God. And so the Lord saw that and held him up and established him as, an, as, a, uh, as a, someone to look to, as a, as a, what's the word, role model, I suppose? You know, but he held him up to, as, an, as an example. So that's one of the reasons why David is so important. And everybody say this, God uses imperfect, broken Messed up people, just like me. It's true. And he uses David. And what you're going to see, because now we're coming, David's going to come into the kingship, and you're really going to see a lot of David's brokenness. All of his brokenness and going to put him come out on the table. And that's what the scripture does, is it lays it all out there for you. And it doesn't lay it out there to expose it. It lays it out there so that you can be encouraged that the Lord will work in, in, in people's lives in spite of the choices and the decisions that they make. And God will show us within, He shows us within His Word the wisdom of someone's choices, and He shows us the foolishness of someone's choices. And He shows us the result of someone pursuing the Lord, and He shows us the result of someone who didn't pursue the Lord. And you see that, or you'll see that a lot in David's life. So just to give you an example, we're probably going to fly through four chapters of 2 Samuel today in four slides. So buckle up. Boom. We're going to go. <laughs> Saul has died. So 1 Samuel closes. The book opens with the birth of Samuel, and the book closes with the death of Saul. Saul has just died, and Saul committed suicide. Very, very difficult thing. And a very thing that's very practical and very common, and it's something that's very relative to our generation and to our timetable. And we see suicide a lot, very common. And suicide, so in other words, we have to understand, that, and again, this is just a little window, and it's a little side window into understanding, but everything, if, there's a, if there's a problem within a culture, the answer's in the Bible. I just want you to understand that. The scripture is not separated from culture or from society. The scripture is to be integrated into the culture and into the society. Actually, it's, it's, it's the preservative. Not only is the church the preservative, but the word of God is actually the foundation and the truth. So if there's an issue within the scripture or there's an issue within the culture, the answer to that problem is in the Bible. And suicide is a direct result of hopelessness. That's where it comes from. It comes from hopelessness. And Saul killed himself because Saul said, it's hopeless. I'm surrounded by the enemy. And not only did he feel hopeless because he was surrounded by the enemy, Saul began to perceive what was going to happen to him. I'm surrounded by the enemy. Okay, so I feel hopeless. And then he started getting into all these crazy thoughts. They're going to come to me. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. And they're going to make a big spectacle of me. So it's better if I kill myself. Well, who, nowhere to say the Lord told him that. But he, he, he made this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy upon himself, and he killed himself. And suicide is, a, is, is an act of selfishness, and I don't mean that to be um, insensitive. I don't mean that at all. I've had 
very close people to me uh, commit suicide in, in, in family line. And the reason that I say that it's selfishness is that suicide is uh, a decision that is made and it's a decision that's focused merely upon the person's self. And when the person takes their life, they have no understanding or no thought of the consequences that it does and how it affects the people around them. That's why it's a selfish thought. And any of you who ever lost someone to suicide, as my family has, you realize the impact that that person taken, the, the damage is done around them. And so it's an inconsiderate act upon the lives of other people. But it, it comes out of hopelessness. They don't believe that there's any hope. They don't believe that there's any, any future. And really what that is, is it's a lie. And there should never be hopelessness within the church, ever. Christians have no excuse for hopelessness. Crickets. <laughs> Christians have no excuse. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is hope. So it tells us, unto Jesus Christ our hope. So Jesus is the personification of hope. Saul's problem was that he moved away from the Lord. Saul had made very selfish decisions and he had moved away from the Lord. And the only person that Saul could take comfort in or counsel in was himself. And that's a very bad place to be. When your only comfort and your only counsel is you, me, myself, and I, and then the people around you, you're in a really bad place. Human wisdom is not sufficient to solve the problems that we face as, as, as human beings. We need divine counsel. And so Saul had moved away from the Lord. He had broken relationships with the Lord. At any time, Saul could have turned and came back to the Lord, yet he did not. And so Saul continued to spiral and considered to go to this place, and ultimately he ended up taking his life. You can see that contrasted with David. David in the last chapter, David's in a really bad place too. David made a decision to move away from the Lord. David moved, made a decision to go and live with the Philistines, the natural enemies of, the, of his people. And so David has now sort of left the faith and gone to live with the Philistines. Well, why did he do that? Because he was betrayed by family members. True. See it in the church all day long. People in the church hurt you. Oh, I got hurt. Somebody hurt me in the church. They go off and go back to the old life that they used to live, and they just abandon, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Well, you have an issue. You know, and say, people hurt me. Well, Jesus, David got hurt. His own tribe of Judah betrayed him. So Judah betrayed him, and when Judah betrayed him, David lost it. He said, everybody else is betraying me. Now Judah, it's the, my, my own people are betraying me. And so he went and lived with the Philistines, and he found himself in a very bad place. And he was hurt, and he was wounded, and he was in pain, and he was suffering, because, and he had all the excuses in the world to be where he was. Some of you have been hurt, and you've been wounded by Christians and by churches. That's a fact. To, to say that that doesn't happen is to be naive, woefully naive. I was wounded, and I'm, dude, I'm in leadership. You don't, think, you don't think leaderships take arrows? I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, uh, come on. I've served in leadership for decades in, within the churches. And that's really, you get the point of the spear. You get the arrows. You not only get the sheep that bite you, ang, 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 ang. you get the pastor who has a sword in his hand, and, he, and if he doesn't wield it, he, he'll, he uses that sword to hack you to pieces. Leadership is entrusted with a sword. I carry a sword. I can either perform surgery with that sword, or I can hack the people to pieces. You understand that? The spirit gives life, but the letter kills. I hold the letter in my hand. I can wield it. I can wield the sword of the spirit, and I can, I can hack people, and I can hurt people, and I can wound people, and I can run them through, and I can claim spiritual authority, which is my right. But I'm not using spiritual authority to empower myself. My spiritual authority is given to empower the people for the glory of the Lord. You understand? 
And so that's not always the case. Oftentimes, leadership bears a sword, and they use it not the way that God would intend it, and they hack the people to pieces, and they run the people through, and they hurt people, right? And judgment and pain. Look, we're all broken. We're all screwed up. To pretend that we're all righteous is absolute foolishness. Sunday morning, they say, is the most hypocritical day in the, in, in the country. It's where we all come in and pretend that we don't have any problems. Oh, bless God. Hallelujah, brother. Shiny, happy people holding on. As we just kind of act like we're just like these like, people without problems. That's not a reality. We're all broken and we're all in different places and we're all in different stages along the journey. You know, the, the issue isn't whether or not you're broken. The issue is where, where is your dependency lie? Is your dependency upon you or is your dependency upon the Lord? That's the issue. Brokenness, and so what we do with churches is we classify ourselves and we become the religiously correct and we like to point fingers at everyone. And usually that starts from the leadership, okay? Everything produces after its own kind. So as the leader projects the atmosphere, my main goal in this church is to not just directionally lead the church, but empower the people and create the culture that the Lord would have created in the church. And that requires me to ask him a question. What do you want to do, okay? And too often that's not the question. We create cultures that we want. We create cultures that we perceive. We create cultures that the denomination dictates. We create cultures that the culture dictates. Do you see what happens? And we're creating atmospheres and cultures within the church. And the one person that we're supposed to ask, we don't ask. We don't ask the Holy Spirit. What, he is the architect and the administrator of heaven. He is the government of heaven come down to build the church for the glory of the Father and the name of Jesus. That's what he's here for. And we don't ever bother to ask him, Lord, what do you want to do in your church? How do you want to minister? How do you want this church built? What is the culture? What is the atmosphere? And I'm going to give you a little secret. I'm going to give you a big secret. Pastors don't ask that question. Because what it, requires them, what it requires of them is that God will completely take that leader apart. Because before he builds a culture, he builds a leader. And so subconsciously, the leader knows that in order for this to happen, in order to bring this to place, by, without God doing a work in the leader, the leader does not possess the tools to bring that forward. And so the Lord has to dismantle the leader Take the leader apart. How do you know? Because I've had it done to me several times. Several times. And I have, a, I have an opportunity to partner with that process or I have an opportunity to end that process anytime. Anytime. I could stop the process of God's renewing me and regenerating me and taking me apart. At any time I could stop it. But I don't because it's, it, I know it's not, it's not about me. What God is doing is about He's doing something in me in order that He can do something in you. But if he doesn't, if I don't allow him to do it in me, he will never do it in you. That's why churches hit caps and ceilings. And they're the same way for 20 years. Same exact thing. Nothing changes. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Never emptying yourself vessel to vessel. Never giving out, never receiving, never changing, never transforming. And it says this, your scent remains. You're the same way. You smell the same way. You act the same way that you did 20 years ago. And that's why we have dead, stale, just nothingness going on within the house. And it's not because God wants it. It's because the leader, we're failing at the point of leadership. And if you aspire to leadership in anything, and the one person you lead is you. So you're all leaders. Whether you know it or not, you're a leader. So we all can't be leaders, Pastor. You're a leader. <laughs> you lead a house. You lead a family. You lead a home. You, and all of that, you lead you. 
So whether you lead from this kind of context or whether you lead in the marketplace, the business world, or any, any other state of life, you lead you. And so because you lead you, you should know principles of leadership because those same principles apply to you as much as they do to an organization or to anything else in the world. And so one of the things is, is that God isn't going to change anything until he changes the leader. Nothing's going to happen. Boom, right over here. I got one. High five right there, Moise. Boom. There we go. Right here. Boom. So there we go. He isn't going to change anything until he changes the leader. And so subconsciously, the pastor doesn't want to ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to do. Because if we do, they know what the Holy Spirit's going to do. I'm going to deal with you. That's a, he goes there immediately. Immediately. And so if, they do, if, a, if a leader does that one or two times and they know the Holy Spirit's going to go there to them, they don't want to do it because it makes them feel vulnerable. And it's the same thing with you. When you ask the Lord to change things, he's going to deal with you. Attitudes, actions, perceptions, lies, he's going to deal with you. And if you can't push past the place of vulnerability and trust him and let him do his work and be willing to yield and be transformed at very deep levels in your life, nothing will happen. Nothing. Everything else is wishful thinking. And so what has to happen is God has to transform the leader before he transforms the church. And we have this static, stagnant issues within our houses and within the kingdom is because it's a failure at the point of leadership. Everything produces after its own kind. And you've been hurt, you've been wounded because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong people. Maybe you did some stupid things wrong. Maybe they used their power wrongfully. Maybe they did a lot of things wrong. It's just the point. I've been wounded. I've been hung out to dry. I've literally felt like I've been stripped naked and had the skin peeled off my body and held up on display in many ways. I've had wounds. You can run your hand across my heart, and it's gonna, you're going to read Braille. You're going, oh, wow, you, you'd like Braille on your heart. Yeah, because it's from all the wounds and all the cuts. That's why my heart reads like Braille, okay? Where Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bear the pain of his suffering. It's not external. A lot of times it's emotional. It's, exter- it's, it's, it's all of this stuff. It's not just, oh, I'm being persecuted from an outside world. A lot of times persecution and pain comes from within. I don't know who this is for because I did not go to this place on Sunday, last service. But this is for somebody. You've been wounded by churches. You've been outcast. You've been hurt. All of this stuff has happened. That may be true, but this is what I would share with you. I shared this last service. I had the same thing happen to me, and I had gone on for a period of time. This is why David is in Philistines with the Philistines because his own family, the church is our family, his own family had wounded him, and so he had left what what was safe to him, and now he's with the enemy. God never told him to go there. Very important to understand. Nowhere did Jesus tell David, go to the Philistines. He did that on his own. He made a decision without counsel, and he made a decision without the counsel of the Lord and against what God would have him to do, and it's going to cost him dearly. And so I was in this position, I was in this situation, and I'm sitting down with this guy, and I'm talking to him. He had a similar experience to me, and I'd see that he was at a different place than I was, and I'd been kind of struggling and hurt and wounded and feeling sorry for myself and licking my wounds for about a year and a half. And I sat down, and I talked to this guy, and I said, hey, you know, and I started explaining my situation to him. He looks at me, and he goes, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you. He said, what was done to you was wrong, a great injustice, a pain that you didn't deserve, and something that, that is, you know, without reason. But he looked at me and he said, but you must regain the courage to lead. That's what he told me. At some point and some time, you've got to own that what happened to you is what happened to you. It's over, plays over. And you have to regain the courage to lead. You have, to, you have to stop making excuses. I don't go to church because church hurt me. I don't get around. We have to stop making those excuses because they don't play. 
They don't map. Those excuses are not excuses. You don't maybe go to that church, but you're, going to, but you're called to be part of a family and you're called to be part of a functioning part of the body. And at some point, you've got to regain the, 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 you've got to regain the courage to lead. Some of you have been hurt in marriages. You've been wounded. Divorce is a painful, traumatic experience. You've been hurt. And you have a hard time leading now. You have a hard time trusting into relationships. You have a hard time becoming the person you know you could be or you know the Lord would have you because you have a hard time trusting. You have to get over that experience. You have to get over that excuse. And you have to tell yourself, I am regaining my courage to lead. I'm going to regain my courage to trust. Somewhere along the journey, you have to do that or nothing's going to change. (laughs) Moise will keep clapping. He'll keep me going all day. All day. (laughs) Sherry's like, you just keep going. I'm like, yeah, because they're encouraging me. I'm like, yeah, here, you have some more. Here, have some more. (laughs) So David finds himself in Ziklag. He finds himself among the Philistines. He makes a decision. Saul made a decision. Saul turned away from the Lord. David turned away from the Lord. But David, when it all hit the road, when everything went bad, David turned back to Jesus. And that's what spins the whole story. David left the Lord, goes out to fight against his own people, finds himself in an extremely compromising position, a place that he did not want to be but he's there nonetheless. He then goes home with his men. He's got 600 men with him. He goes home and he finds that he was partners with this enemy, but while he was partnering with this enemy, another enemy came and destroyed everything that he had, took everything, burned his house to the ground, took everything he had, complete and total loss. And so he shows up back home at Zigzag and everything's gone. Wife, children, money, cars, boats, everything's gone. And he's standing there going, what am I going to do? And while he's saying to himself, what am I going to do? He looks around, and he's got 600 men that are going, you're the problem, David. So David rolled with a biker gang. So I want you to understand the kind of guys that David rolled with. And we think, oh, David was with all these really nice guys. If you read the story of who these guys were, they were not nice guys at all. They were very violent body men. You know, they were very, these were rough, tangly guys. They weren't guys to kind of be, be you know, if you, when you see the, who they were and what they actually did and how they were just, you know, they were all in for a fight. Anytime, anywhere, these guys were down for a fight. So these guys were ready to roll. And so the same guys you've been fighting with are now telling you the problem, David. You brought us here. I lost everything because I trusted you. And David, here's the deal, right? So we have this, we have this culture that fails to do this, and so it's, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And so we have, a, we have to understand that as Christians, we're not of this world, and that there are principles that, that bring change into our life, and I'm going to give you one of them. Say this, David, David took, took personal, personal responsibility, responsibility for his actions. If you don't take personal responsibility for your actions, nothing's changing. He didn't blame his mother, and I'm not saying there's not generational issues. He didn't blame the Philistines. He didn't blame the Amalekites. He didn't blame Saul. It's Saul that made me do this. And because I was with it, he didn't blame anybody. He took responsibility to himself. And so after he did that, you're the problem, David. He's like, yep, pretty much. I made this decision, and I brought us here. And then it says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Very key point. David said to himself, even though I've completely screwed this thing up, even though I've completely turned this into a mess, and this mess has not just affected me, this mess that I've created is affecting everyone around me. David said, if I will return to the Lord, he will be merciful, he will be kind, and he will help restore the situation. It's true. It's true. And now the promise applies to you. That's Old and New Testament. They grew up with that promise. The Lord told them through Moses that if you will follow me, blessing will come into your life like a river. There will be a consistent 
river of blessing. Even though you hit a couple of bumps, you're going to keep moving forward and I'm going to keep blessing you. And then he told them, but if you depart from me and you find yourself way out there, cut off from everything, if you will return to me, I will be merciful and I will be gracious to you. That was not something that neither Saul nor David would have been foreign to. They would have known that because they were raised inside of a culture that's a Talmudin culture. They were raised in the Talmud. They were trained every day in the word of God. That's how these kids were raised. From the time they were five years old and up, they were trained not in math, not in sciences. They were trained in the word of God. So this is this culture. They would have known that about the Lord. And Saul knew it because he would have been trained, and David knew it. The only difference is is that David actually acted on the promise and Saul didn't. And a lot of times that's the difference between the believers, that there are believers who will actually act upon the promise, press into the promise, contend for the promise, refuse to receive anything but the promise, and they got it. And then there are those who don't contend for any promises, don't believe the promises are for today, or they step out and at the first sign of trouble they go running, and we don't understand how to stand, don't understand how to contend, don't understand how to push forward because the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus in your life, the rule and reign in God in every arena is going to have violent opposition. Yes. The kingdom suffers violence. It's not the believer that suffers violence. It's the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The dominion of God in your life. The rule and reign of God. You step out, begin to believe God in this arena, you're going to be opposed. It's part of the process. And the lie that we teach within our churches, well, if it was God's will, it wouldn't be that difficult. Well, who told you that? No, seriously, who told you that? That's dogma. That's not doctrine. That's nowhere in the Bible is that there. Nowhere. Well, we don't want to get ahead of the Lord. I love that one. Don't want to get ahead of the Lord, Pastor. Don't want to get ahead of the Lord. Really? Well, I read in the Gospels where Jesus intentionally said them ahead of him. He sent them ahead of him into the city. He sent them ahead of them into a storm. We don't want to get ahead of the Lord. I'm like, do you know your Bible? So who are we quoting? Are we talking Dr. Phil or are we quoting Jesus here? Who, I mean, who, who are we quoting? What do we need to understand? We don't want to get ahead of Jesus. He's already ahead of you. He already sends you. He intentionally sends you ahead of him. He does that on purpose. We have to contend for the promises. We have to know what is ours. We have to know what is right by inheritance. We have to know what belongs to us. And we have to refuse to receive anything but what is ours by right. It's true. Violently opposed. You must in turn match it with equal force. But the force that we match against that one is greater. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. What we carry is superior to anything the enemy can bring against us. Anything. Either that's true or we all need to go fishing. No, for real. We either believe that and live that or where are we meeting? You know what I'm saying? I mean, what are we doing? What, 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 are we, what, are we, what are we doing? We have to believe this stuff, press into it, and believe God and see it happen. It's the only way it happens. And so David and Saul had the same experiences. They had the same truth. One acted on it. The other didn't. There's always hope. We're heirs. We go through. We don't go under. So Saul looked at it from hopelessness. There should never be hopeless. You should never, ever be hopeless. When you feel hopeless, you need to shut that down and go into hope. And you need to tell yourself, Jesus loves me even on my worst day. And you say, why do I say that? Why do I teach him? Why do, I, why do you make us say, Jesus loves me even on my worst day, pastor? Why do you make us say these little, like, frilly sayings? Because I'm trying to reinforce it into your consciousness and into your subconsciousness because one of the biggest things the enemy does is self-condemnation. He condemns you. Oh, look what you did. 
Oh, you loser. Oh, you're dumb. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. And he condemns you in your own voice. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's not an issue that the devil's condemning you. He's condemning you as you. So you'll have external condemnation and then you'll have self-condemnation. And that's why you have to go, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. Jesus loves me on my worst day. It's true. <laughs> He's for me when I'm against me. I tell me myself that all the time. Man, I screwed that up. Oh, that was a mistake. Well, Jesus is for me even when I'm against me. He's in the restoration business. He's the God of the turnaround. It's what he does. It's what he does. He's in the restoration business 24 hours a day, seven days a week, eternally restoring. That's right. Thank you, Jesus. The only way you screw it up is when you quit, and the only way you screw it up is when you partner with hopelessness. And that's exactly where the enemy wants to get you, is to make an agreement of hopelessness, to make an agreement. David had the same experience. David, it's hopeless. They just took everything from and you have 600 crazy dudes ready to kill you. It's over. David could have go, give me a sword, and he could have killed himself. He was surrounded by loss, and he was surrounded by violent men that wanted to take his life. Saul had the same experience. Saul was, Saul was in the middle of loss and surrounded by violent men that wanted to take his life. And David chose hope. He did not partner with hopelessness. The same lies were being said to David, I can, I can assure you. David, you screwed this up. At you, you're a loser. You're supposed to be king. King? Are you kidding me? You can't even walk a dog. And you think you're going to lead a nation? I'm sure he was being inundated with that. Oh my gosh, this is stupid. This is why my father kept me out with the sheep, was because I'm such a loser. This is why my brothers never liked me. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. The enemy will try to get you to partner with lies. You can partner with a lie or you can partner with the truth. It's up to you. It's up to you. Whose report will you believe? You can partner with truth, you can partner with a lie. And let's just be clear. Say this with me. Truth has no feeling. Lies have a lot of feeling, don't they? It's amazing how a lie is always coupled with emotion. Crazy. It's always partnered with and reinforced with emotion. But truth has no feeling. Just like faith. Faith has no clear. People go, I don't know if I have faith. I go, do you have clarity? And they'll go, yeah. I go, you have faith. Faith is clear. That's what faith is. Faith is a choice, a determination, and it's clarity. If you have clarity, that's faith. Faith does not come with emotion. It may from time to time, but when you're looking for emotion attached to faith, you're looking in the wrong place. When you're looking for emotion attached to truth, you're looking in the wrong place. And I think the Lord does that intentionally because he doesn't want us to be governed by our emotions. He doesn't want us to be swayed. He wants us to be governed by our will and the determination of our will. I will follow truth. I will believe truth. I will align myself with this, whether I feel like it or not. It's really the mastery of self. You overcome your emotions. You subject your emotions to the truth of God, whether you want to or not. This is, this is the discipline. This is how we grow. It's true. We must live by what is true and not what is real. And let me reinforce another thing with you. Can I talk to you guys for a minute? Are you guys going anywhere to go? No, I'm not. Like the Jets game's on, Kevin. Forget the Jets. Who cares? We've got the real super, we got the real rock star in the room right now. Jesus is in the room. So anyway, yes, yes, I got one. I can always count on Moise. When the room goes silent, I'll go, what do you think, Moise? And Moise is going to go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We have to live by, this is an important thing because it's very powerful and this will change your life. This will literally, if you can get this and begin to believe this and understand this, this will change you. 
Say this. You, somebody said, I've heard it 100 times. Yeah, are you doing it? So you can tell me you've heard it when you're doing it. But don't tell me you've heard it because you hear me say it all the time. Say, Kevin, I've heard you say this 50 times. Okay, great. You're about to hear it 51. So my question isn't, have you heard it? My question is, are you doing it? Because you haven't heard anything until you're doing it. Until you're doing it, there is no, there is no basis for you to say that you've heard it because you're not applying it. Okay? So say this with me. Truth and reality are not the same thing. We pursue truth until truth becomes reality. Your reality says it's over. Your reality says it's hopeless. Your reality says there's no way out. Truth says the Lord will make a way where men say there is no way. David's reality said he's going to die. David's reality said the enemy has carried off all of your possessions. You've been raided. Your house is burnt to the ground. And it's your fault, David. Just accept it. Just accept it. That's what he tries to get you to do. And David said, that might be, I'm not saying this is what he's saying, but the, what the image is, is that was his reality. But the truth was, is that God will help me. The truth is, is I'm in covenant with him. The truth is, is that I carry an anointing, and so do you. The truth is that the Lord will help me, and the Lord will make this into my good. That's the truth. So which way are you going to go? Are you going into that, or are you going into this? And you make a choice. This is where I'm going. I believe God's going to turn around. And you, you, you lean into truth and push away from, from, from reality. That's completely contradictory to what we are as humans. As human beings, we are made to accept reality. I was dealing with a person recently, and there's some things that happened within the family and all this stuff, and I'm there, and I'm ready to pray, and I'm ready to go into it and trying to hear, and I'm trying to listen to the family and where they think and where everything is on this. And the person looks at me and goes, well, we just may have to accept this. And the wife looks over and goes, I don't want to accept this. And my, I'm sitting here thinking, well, why am I here? If we're just accepting this reality, why am I here? I'm here to, to help you and encourage you and lead you into the truth of what God says. But if you want to accept the reality, then go right ahead. Go right ahead. As long as you're breathing, there's hope. As long as you put the mirror and say, I don't know if there's hope. Put the mirror under your phone. Put your cell phone under your nose and breathe out. And if there's fog on it, that means there's hope. Okay? As long as there's fog on the cell phone when you breathe on it, you have hope. It's true. Next slide. We live by what is true and not by what is real. This is fundamental to the believer. Very, very important. And the reason that it's fundamental is because life is going to give you inevitable losses. Life is going to give you hopeless situations, difficult situations, and a reality that tells you you can go no further. Nowhere does Jesus say that. Nowhere. Nowhere. And you have to come to that place where it's like, what does the Lord say? Okay, this is what the situation say. What does the Lord say? And I guarantee if you begin to listen in the Spirit, this is why we cultivate the prophetic here, to teach you, because it means nothing without, this is how we know, what does the Lord say? He'll say I guarantee you, He's going to say, live and not die, succeed and not fail, above only, not beneath. <laughs> You're going to prosper and be in health, even as your soul. He's going to tell you something hopeful. You're never going to hear a negative word from the Lord. Why? Because He's hope. Hope, hopelessness doesn't come out of his mouth. Find me a place where Jesus said it's hopeless. He, he doesn't. Because he's hope. Love believes all things. I tell you guys, I was doing some stuff with the Holy Spirit, and I was ministering to people and doing inner healing with these people and, and, and helping this person out. And, and I'm praying, and I ask, and I try to get discernment. I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you want here? What, how do you want to do this? And the Lord would say, do this. And he would, and, and like, to get this person from this place to this place, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the Lord would say, tell them to say this. 
And so I'd go, okay, that's what the Lord says. He says, say this, and, you know, and I'd lead him with what the Lord was saying, and I would see the transformation happen right in front of my eyes. And I would get in a car, and I would go home, and I would do, it's called an after-action report. So if you do ministry, one of the best things you could ever do is do after-act. You, you go back and evaluate and listen to the Lord and let him, let him, let him show you. And so I'm going home, and I'm like going, you know, I thought that was really cool. I'm telling him, like, you know, you tell him to say this, but... When the person was seeing it, this is what I'm telling Jesus. I shared this last week, but I'll share it again. I was telling the Lord, I said, when they were seeing it, I wasn't really believing it. You know what I'm saying? This is me. I'm like, they're saying it and everything. They're like, oh. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not really sure you believe in what you're saying, you know, and everything. But you believed it, and I saw the transformation right in front of me. And I asked the Lord, why did you believe that? Why did you believe that person? And the Lord said to me, love believes all things. It's 1 Corinthians 13. He quotes me a verse. He said, Kevin, I believe it because, they, because love believes all things. If they're willing to say it, I'm willing to accept it as being true. If they're willing to step in, I'm willing to accept it as true. Because God isn't judging us on our feelings, on what he perceives we're feeling. And what I'm trying to tell you is, is what you begin, the Spirit of God believes you. He believes you. So that's very delicate thing. So when you say something, he actually believes you. Isn't that amazing? He believes you. It's crazy. And so when God tells you to do something and you do it, or he tells you to say something and, and contend, or he gives you wisdom. And so David turns back to Jesus and goes, hey, help me. And the Lord believes him and helps him. And the Lord didn't give him a lecture. You know, David, before I help you, I just want to go over a few things with you. Now, you 18 months ago made a decision. He didn't go in. He didn't give David a speech. He said, you know, you, didn't, you weren't here partnering, and I saw you partying with the Philistines last night, and I saw you doing this, and I saw you doing that, and I saw you drawing a sword to go against your own people, and I saw you this, and I saw you that, and, you know, and you're doing all these things wrong, and David had a whole list at this point of what he had done wrong. The Lord didn't give him a speech. He's not going to give you a speech. We like to give speeches. The Lord gives you grace, which you don't deserve, spiritual empowerment. He gives, you, he gives it to you. So anyway, I'll leave it there. David hears the Saul's death. He leaves. He asks questions of the Lord, what he should do. The Lord tells him to go back home. So he goes back home to Judah. Judah had just betrayed him. How would you like that one? Go back to the people you just, who just betrayed you. But David continued to bless them. Even when they betrayed him, David blessed the people. I, I, this, this is probably one of the hardest things for me in Scripture. And you guys can say, oh, let's pray for the pastor. So you guys can definitely pray for me on this. Is when, <laughs> when someone wounds you at a deep level and in a very painful place, to express a complete vulnerable and openness of generosity back to that person. That's very hard. It's very hard. And we have to be honest with that. But this is where David was at. David was able to be, to be vulnerable. He was able to be open, and he was able to be generous back to the people who had just hurt him. And if you think that's too trite, my saying that, then I would say to you, no one's hurt you that deeply then. Because there are people in your life that you even hear their name or you think about them, you become infuriated. You have visions of running them over with a car. You know what I'm saying? You celebrate their failures, right? And that's our human side. And it just shows you the difference, you know? The Lord's different. So David did that. He blesses them. He goes back. How the Lord speaks to you, this is very important. The Lord will speak to you. Say this with me. I am Jesus' sheep. Let's say that again. I am Jesus' sheep, and as his sheep, I can hear his voice. 
That's right. My sheep hear my voice. So the Lord says, the Lord will speak to you by his spirit. You'll ask God for counsel and he'll speak to you. And he'll witness his counsel to you with his word. So he'll speak by his spirit, witness with his word. Or he'll speak by his word, witness with his spirit. And oftentimes when people don't hear the Lord, and this is very important because this was Saul's problem, Saul called out to the Lord and he didn't hear anything. And the reason that Saul didn't hear anything is because the Lord had pointed him to a rebellion that he had had that he had not answered for. The Lord, he had, he had rebelled against the Lord and dishonored God and he had not accounted for it and he had not repented. Had Saul accounted for his rebellion and his foolishness and his stupidity, the Lord would have forgiven him and would have spoken to him. One of the root causes in the believer's life and when, one of the root causes as to why we can't hear the Lord, rebellion or the spirit, which the Bible clearly says, spirit of deaf and dumb is directly related to rebellion. When you can't hear the Lord and you can't see the Lord and you can't understand what he's saying to you, there's an issue in your life. So let me define rebellion for you. Rebellion is, is the Lord told you to do something prior and you haven't done it. The Lord has given you instruction on a matter in your life that needs to be reconciled, some areas where you need to clean up the mess, some areas where you need to change things. He's given you intentional instructions directionally and it, whatever the instruction is, you've not done it. And so what you find is now the wall, that now there's almost a silence when you call out to him. And the reason is, is because he's not going to instruct you beyond the last instruction that he gave you. If you ask him if he loves you, he'll tell you I love you. If you ask him, Lord, are you with me? He'll tell you he's with you. If you ask him, Lord, am I saved? He's going to tell you. Who's going to minister all that to you? But if you're asking him for instruction and you've not obeyed his previous instructions, you're not getting any more instruction. And if you do get instruction, it's going to be directly related to the last instruction he gave you is going to tell you to go back and do the former things. Go back and do what I told you from the beginning, Kevin. You want further instruction? Okay, let's go back here to square point A. Let's do what I told you to do here, and now I'll move you to point B. This is very common. Deaf and dumb is directly related to a spirit of rebellion. Rebellion is as the win of, is as a sin of witchcraft. We wouldn't openly rebel against God. Oh, Jesus, unto you I surrender. All to you, Jesus, all to you. I'm totally yours, I'm totally yours. Yeah, do you obey what he says? I was doing a word study this week on communion, because I thought communion was this week. Shows you where I'm at. And in communion, when Jesus is doing, he's telling them, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Okay? They look at him and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can keep it? The Greek word isn't that they didn't understand. The Greek word is that what you're saying to us is stiff. This is a rigid statement that we have to take all of you or we can't take any of you. That's what he said. It's not following for miracles, fish and chips. You know, it's not circus you know, you know, because Jesus was fun to follow around. I mean, dude, I would be totally following him around. I'd be like, what? Dude's walking on water, fish and chips, man, coming out of the sky. What the what in the world? Lame, blind, all this crazy stuff going on all the time. It would have been like, whoa. Before TV, that was an action series right there, man. And he looks at the people who are following him, and he knows why they're following him. And he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And they said, this is a stiff saying, who can, who can keep it? And they weren't saying a stiff saying because he was, because they didn't understand it. He was saying it's a stiff saying, it's without, it's without compromise. This statement is a stiff saying without compromise. And Jesus looks at him and he says, does this offend you? And what caught my attention as I'm studying this is I use this word for offense and it means to push away. But the Greek word that he uses for this offense was different. And so I was like, huh. In other words, what Jesus was saying wasn't that, does this make, it, make, it, make you push away? What he uses is a Greek word that means kill. And what he says to them is he says, does this stiff saying kill it for you? 
Is this the deal breaker for you? The fact that you must have all of me or you have none of me, is this where, is this where you go out the door? Is this the killing point for you? So it wasn't that they were pushing him away, they were ending it right there. I mean, he didn't stutter. And when you realize that when, when you realize the God of the universe, the creator of all, he had a right to exercise authority over them, yet he chose not to. This is what you see even with David. David had a right to impose the kingdom upon the north, but he didn't. He served the north until the north asked him to be king. That's another type of Christ. He had the right to be king. He had the decree of heaven over him to be king. He could have gone there stormtrooper style and blasted them all out of the area and he could have obtained the leadership because the anointing of heaven was on him. But he didn't follow that path. He humbled himself, he served them, and then they invited him. Jesus does the same thing. He had the complete authority with this group of people. He could have exercised his dominion over them, but he didn't. He humbled himself. You have the creator of the universe sitting there talking to you and saying, listen, guys, I'm going to show you the way forward. I'm going to show you out of your predicament. I'm going to show you the way of life. All of me or none of me. Oh, this is a stiff saying. Our church is, oh, we're just friends with Jesus. La-di-da. Big man upstairs. Weak gospel. Weak gospel. Weak Christian brokenness. The enemy ravages you. All here, all they're doing is tenderizing you for a feast because the wolves are coming. That's all they're doing. They don't teach you to stand. They tell which Jesus upstairs. Oh, no, no, well, I believe this and I think this is right and I think that's right. And no, God's not like this, God's like that. Well, who told you that? That's not who he said he was. He tells you all or nothing. And he doesn't blink when they leave. 350 people left him that day. The whole church cleared out. 350 people and out the door. And he looked at the 12, told them, you going too? He didn't even go, no, no, wait a minute. I, you, know, you guys are misunderstanding me. He didn't reason with them. He said, this is it. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. That's the gospel. It's all of Jesus or none of him. That's how it works. God speaks to us through his word. He witnesses by his spirit. And he speaks through circumstances. He will never speak to you through a circumstance unless he doesn't witness with his word and his spirit. Never. You go, oh, that's my open door. I'm going to take it. Well, do you have a witness of his spirit and a witness of his word that aligns with the circumstance? The biggest failure of Christians is we follow circumstances. And we're not following the spirit. We're not following the word. We're following a circumstance. You know, oh, that church offended me. And my friend last week invited me to go to their church. So that must be the Lord. What? Really? Is the Lord calling you out of that? Did you, have you sensed this prior? Has the Lord been ministering to you and that it's time for a change and that you need to move forward? Because if that's just a circumstance and it's not bears with his witness, if the witness of the Spirit is that way, then by all means take that road. But if the witness of the Spirit isn't there, you should not be following circumstances. Oh, you know, my boss didn't give me a raise, and so the, church, the, 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 the uh, job down the street's hiring, so I just quit my job and went and worked there. Well, that's not, that might be a circumstantial decision, but that's not, we, we are to follow the counsel of the Lord. Lord, what do you want? Is this right? Is this what you're telling me? And if he says yes, then do it. And who is he going to say yes to? He's going to say yes to you. He's not going to tell your neighbor on your behalf. He's going to tell you. He wants you to understand what he's saying. And he wants you to follow him. So what makes us here? What's it take to hear the Lord? I know I'm I'm a little over, but, you know, hey, man, we love you guys. I say this every week, and so often I try to contain myself, but I just can't. And so I just say, you know, and, and it's just a subconscious thing that I do. I do this internal battle with myself. And I just have to just let it fly and just let it be. <laughs> Thank you, Moise. <laughs> 
So what does it take to hear the Lord? You need a margin. You have to create time. Okay, if you want to hear the Lord, he's not, you're not going to hear the Lord if, if all you're doing is running a track meet. You're not going to hear him. If you're racing from place to place, if you blast on the radio everywhere you go, and every place you're surrounded by noise, you won't hear the Lord. You have to create a margin. You have to create a margin to hear him, whether it's in the morning, it's in the evening, it's on the car, work to work, whatever. You have to, you have to create a margin if you want to hear him. You have to have patience. He will speak to you. And if you're not hearing him, ask him, Lord, is there anything in my life that, I, that prevents me from hearing you? Is there anything that you've told me before that I haven't done? If there's anything that's keeping me from hearing you, and he may tell you yes, or he may tell you no, I'm working on it. I had a woman one time, she was trying to sell her business. This woman is drowning underwater, hugely in debt, terrible situation. I told her all about it, and I tell her, you need to give. You need to start tithing. Oh, oh, that's terrible, counsel pastor. Who told you to tell her to tithe? That she's in debt, she can't even pay her mortgage, she's all this other stuff. I'm like, yeah, she needs a breakthrough. Heaven operates by God's principles, not man's. Heaven operates by God's wisdom, not man's. She started tithing. She started giving. Her hands would shake, and she would come up to me, and she would grab, and she'd go, I just want to let you know, I just gave $100 today. And I wasn't like, oh, bravo, here, let's bring her up, testify. Hey, show and gave $100 today, hallelujah. It, I don't, it, wasn't, it wasn't my honor that was being sought here. I told her, consistently give and believe God for that breakthrough. And she would pray and ask God, and she said she would be driving, and she would have tears, and she would tell me, the Lord, she, the Lord had already told her, but then she had, she had driving her car, and tears were coming down her face. And she's like, God, why aren't you talking to me? Lord, why aren't you asking me, answering me? And he said he'd call her by name, so we'll call her Jenny. And he said to her, Jenny, I'm working on it. So sometimes the Lord isn't answering you because he's working on it. He's heard you, and he's working on it. And she ended up selling her building at a profit. At a profit. She made over 100 grand on a building that, was, that she was drowning on. Drowning. And the, the Lord brought the craziest buyer for this property. If you knew where her property was, it was like, you know, it was well located on a road, but access-wise, it wasn't anything desirable. And he brings this crazy buyer who says to her, I don't even know why I'm buying this property. That's what he says to her. I don't even know why I'm buying this. And he bought it. And she made over 100 grand on a property that was upside down. It's true. He can turn you around too. She had to activate into the principles. She didn't want to do it. She didn't feel like it. She wasn't like, oh, Pastor Kevin, I, you know, you told, me to, you told me to give, and I just think that's just not the Lord. That's just not God. And I'm like, hey, well, do what you want, you know. The bank can take it, or Jesus can bless you. It's your way. Your way. And for me, if with ships going down, the ship's going down, believe in God. That's for me. I'm going down in faith. I'm not going down in fear. I'm going down and facing the glory of God. I'm not going to be running the opposite way. I'm going to believe God no matter what. And whatever the result is, is the result. But I'm going to stand and I'm going to believe and I'm going to be facing the things that Lord has me. I will honor him in life and death. Be faithful unto death. Don't be faithful perfectly because no one can, but be faithful no matter what. Man, I do not know. I'm telling you guys, there's somebody in here, you're drawing this out of me. So it's like, you should receive it. There's a word for you this morning. Time is a part of the process. So David asked God, he asked for timing, the Lord gives him timing. This again is understandable. I'm trying to relate this back to you. If you understand that time is a wheel, and it is a wheel of passing doors of opportunity. 
Some doors are closed, some doors are open, but that's what, the, that's what time is. And so with timing, we hear the Lord, the Lord gives us a word, and oftentimes we have to wait for the timing of that word. And, so often, and here's the other side of it is, is that the timing of God's word has nothing to do with luck. The timing of God's word, what he's told you, has to do with whether or not you're ready. There is, say this with me, there is nothing true about, well, I shouldn't say nothing. We'll just say it's not lucky. It's ready. It has nothing to do with it. So when I was, you know, share this often, but it's very clear. This is how I learned it. I had a banker tell me that. Very rich banker. When I was doing real estate, he told me. I said, Kevin, there's no such thing as luck. He said, it's ready. And I went, whoa. That's just a golden nugget just fell in my hand right there. And I looked at it. You can have, okay, we'll put it in real estate context. You can have a half a million dollar property come to you and says, you can buy this for $200,000 cash. You can flip it and make 300 grand. How many knows that if you don't have the 200 grand cash, you're not ready to take that opportunity. And that opportunity is going to move right past you. Then the other guy's going to come in. He's going to throw down the 200,000. They're going to flip it and make, make, make 300,000 off it. And you're going to go, they're lucky. No, they weren't lucky. They were ready. You believe God, God gives you a word, and you're waiting for a timetable to elapse. You're waiting for an open door to come to you. In the waiting, you are to develop yourself, Christian. You are to prepare yourself, Christian. You're to develop yourself. You're to endure hardships. You're to honor, even when there's no reason to honor, you're to do it anyway. Believing that, and you say, well, I've missed opportunities. The wheel of opportunity will come around again. There will be another open door. But you can spend your life watching doors pass you by, or you can believe that God has told you this, you can prepare yourself and you can step into the opportunities when it presents by being prepared. Nothing good, and there's, luck has nothing to do with it. Oh, I'm believing God to get married. The Lord brings a really great guy to you, and you're not ready. You're not ready emotionally. You're not ready spiritually. You're in a horrible place. Or the dude who's believing God to get married, God brings a great girl to you, and you can't even keep a job. I'd be the first one to tell you, you don't need to get married. Move out of mom's basement, get out of your Batman PJs, get a J-O-B, learn to support yourself, and then you can, you can take a wife. If you can't support you, you can't support a wife. Plain and simple. It's true. But if you can preach, but if you can support you, you can support a wife. I don't care if the guy's got a Joe job. He's got his apartment, he's got his car, he's got his thing. He can support him, he can support you. It's that simple. But if he can't support you, he, he himself, he can't support you. Wishful thinking. Ladies, you have to prepare yourself too. You have to prepare yourself. It's like my wife would say, you know, we need to do something about the real estate here. We got to like dress this up a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I see some guys bumping their hands at me. You know, you got to like, you know, you haven't watered the grass in a while. We got to make the grass green again. We got to like, you know, do something. Wearing wagon train dresses and not putting on any makeup isn't going to get it home. Now, maybe you don't want to get married. And what I'm talking about is like we have this spiritual perspective. Well, I'm spiritual, pastor. I don't need to get married. God's just going to bring them to me. Ladies, you are meant to be an attraction. You're, I'm going to give you a blessing right now. You are meant to be beautiful. You are the exclamation point of all of creation, ladies. You need to understand this. Adam wasn't the finality of creation. Adam was his signature. Eve was his exclamation point. It's true. He, you are the stamp upon creation. You are the stamp upon the beauty of the Lord. You are. 
You are. And if you neglect that, you are neglecting a core to who you are. You say, well, I'm, I'm not some raging beauty, Pastor. No, but you're beautiful. Listen, women are, can, can, I get a, can I get the men and women? Women are beautiful. Can we admit, at least admit this? Yeah. Women are nicer to look at than a bunch of dudes. Can we get a, can we get a witness on that? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Now, if you don't want that, I'm just, let me put it in the context of desire. If you don't want that, that's fine. But if you want to get married and you want a relationship, this is the pivot that you have to make. If you don't want to get married, that's fine. And if the dude, you don't want to get married, you want to stay up and, you know, for two weeks playing Fortnite, living in your mom's basement, Batman PJs, and she's bringing you milk and cookies and Happy Meals every day, because you, then, then stay there. But don't expect to get married in that circumstance. I'm serious. He loves me. He sleeps on a couch. He loves me. He just borrowed 10 bucks from his mom to drive in the car. What am I missing? It's true. If you want to get married, get beautiful. If you want to get married, get a job. You know, be the best you can be. Reflect the best you you can be. That's it. And it's not just external. It's not about externals, Pastor. I understand that. The Bible says it's not about external beauties and ornamentation. I understand that. But it's the quiet beauty of the heart. I understand that. And God is correcting that church not because of the external beauty. They were putting too much emphasis on it. They were women who were bedazzled. I'm sure all the dudes would go there because it was like, man, there's some girls that are blinging here. You know, they're all like that. But the problem was that there was no substance to the woman. And so the Lord was backing them up and he's saying, you're putting emphasis on this and neglecting this. It's a complete difference. He's saying, listen, be beautiful. The word jewelry means praise to God. Did you know that? That's what it means. Jewelry. That's the, 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 if you break that word down and split it into two, it means praise to God. Jew is praise, Lurie is, is unto him. Or one of the other ways, one of the two different ways. But th- those two words means praise unto him. So we shouldn't wear jewelry. Really? It's praise unto him. So when you're going out and buying some jewelry, and you're going out and you say, this, I just, you bought more jewelry? No, I bought praise unto him. That's what I bought. <laughs> My wife likes rings, I buy her rings. I buy her rings. You know, I, I do. I want her to... Praise unto him. So I have no issues with that. I don't know. I'm digging myself into a hole. You're like, oh, you're telling us to be beautiful and you're telling us to get a job. I don't know, Kevin. I don't know. Be the best you you can be. Last, next slide. I got one more done. I'm sorry. David and his women, I'm not going to get That'll happen in a few weeks because he's going to have some problem with women, and I'll build that a little bit later. David is anointed king in Judah, but Saul's family doesn't want to kind of let go of the power, and so he has an uncle named, named Abner, Abner proclaims war against David. And so for seven years, Abner and the people that he had influence over made war with David. And so David had a struggle for seven years, even after he took what was rightfully his. He still had some issues there. He took seven years. Abner, David had three nephews from his sister. He had a sister. And he had three nephews. One was Joab, one was Abishai, and one was Aziel. And this guy Abner, Saul's uncle, kills one of David's nephews. He kills Azael. And Joab, the other nephew, has a problem with Abner. 
And so now it's a blood feud between Abner and Joab. And Joab, or excuse me, Abner, after fighting with David for seven years, now wants to make peace. He kind of says, hey, this isn't good for anybody. I want to make peace with you, David. Clearly the Lord is with you. I will throw the weight of my government behind you and will unify the kingdom as God would have it. Abner kind of came to himself and realized God was doing something. So David says, hey, that's a good, that's a good idea. Well, Joab had a problem with it. Joab finds out that Abner and David are now going to reconcile the kingdom. And so Joab, David's nephew, says, hey, Abner, come here. David wants to talk to you. And so Abner goes walking with him and Joab kills him. Right? And he hated him. And so Joab deceives him. And, and David, here's, big, here's a big problem with David. David had a lot of things right, but he messed up big time with his family. He treated his family differently, and he had a hard time dealing and disciplining his own house. And you'll see that later when it comes to his sons. David did not know how to relate or discipline his own sons. And here he has a family member commit a crime and do something very difficult, and David did nothing about it and it's going to cost him in the long run. Somebody else did that, David would immediately impose justice, but he had a hard time reconciling his family. Next slide. And it was probably because of his own brokenness. It was probably because of his own rejection, his own struggles within his family. David, ready? Say this with me. David David. came from a dysfunctional family. That's right. His family was messed up. You know, he had Uncle Bill, the alcoholic. You know, he had, you know, Aunt Maria, the, you know, the crazy gal. He had, he had all kinds of stuff. He had all kinds of issues going on. He came from a broken family. It's just the truth. He came from brokenness. And so David mirrored the brokenness that he had received back into his own household. And that was the issue. David captures Jerusalem. This is the last slide. So if you want to get the picture of what's going on here, this is important. This, again, relates back to us. Israel had been a nation. Say this. Israel was a nation for 500 years. And in those 500 years, they had never taken the city of Jerusalem. So so Israel's a nation, and Jerusalem is still in the hands of the enemy. So for 500 years, these people are in a place where God has called them to be, and yet they're letting the devil sit down right in their living room. For 500 years, they tolerated the enemy right in their midst. They didn't do anything about it. This, again, relates to the believers. A lot of times we as Christians, we allow the enemy right into our home. And we just leave it there. Well, you know, my uncle was a Christian or my dad was a Christian. That's the way he handled it. So that's the way I'm going to handle it. And it's just went on for generation after generation. And God has given us an inheritance. He's given us a right. And he tells us to take ownership of what is ours. And we let the enemy sit down right in our home. And we let the enemy own areas of our life. And we do not little to nothing about it. We let them own our finances. We let them own our relationships. We let them own our time. We let them own our families. We let them own all of these different things that we let them sit down right in the middle of our homes and we do nothing about it. Generational inheritances and an unwillingness of the people to confront the elephant in the room. That'd be a problem, right? Didn't the Lord, wait a minute, didn't the Lord tell us to take the whole city? Why, why is Jerusalem still in the hands of the Jebusites? 500 years, nobody even noticed it. Nobody noticed that this isn't the promise of God. This is what you got to do to look at your life. You have to look at your life and go, wait a minute, this isn't my inheritance. Wait a minute, this isn't the promise of God. Wait a minute, this isn't what God says about me. And you can be that. You, you can either be that person or you can be the other one that just like coasts by and just leaves everything the same. God's called us to take our land and to take it fully. What area of your life or where is your issues? There's generational issues. This was a generational issue that they didn't address. And there are generational issues in your family and what the enemy wants you to do is just accept it. Just accept it. 
It's always been this way. It's always been like this. Just accept it. You just need, 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 need to accept it. David takes this fortified city, and he takes it through a water shaft. Let me ask you this. What are the generic... This is ready. You guys want to ask Holy Spirit a question? Yeah. I got one person. That's all I need. So that one person and me will say this. Holy Spirit, what are the generational issues in my family, in my life, that need to be unrooted, that need to be uprooted? My sorry, sorry. Holy Spirit, what are the issues in my life that I'm too blind to see and too weak to confront? Right. So when he shows you that, then you start asking him for the power and the wisdom. I'll leave that question right there. He's going to show you. He's going to point it at you. You can stick your head in the sand, but I guarantee he's going to show you. He'll show you. He'll show you where the problem is. You can't let the enemy live in your Jerusalem. You can't let the enemy occupy a center point, a pivot point in your life. And that's what we do. We let him occupy areas. that he's, he's got no right, man. Get out of here, dude. you got no place with me. Take it down the road. David takes a fortified city for a, to, a, to a, a water shaft. Every, for everything you bring for the kingdom, when you press into the kingdom, the kingdom is what's going to re- receive the opposition. But every time God tells you to take something, every time God tells you, whatever situation that you face, now I don't care how impossible it is, I want you to say this with me. There is always a way. There's always a way. There's always a way. And I love the fact that Jesus makes a way where men say there is no way. There's no, way, no river in a desert, I'll make one. There's no way in the wilderness, I'll make one. How are we going to get through the fire? The Lord's like, I'm going to pass you through the fire and you're not going to be burned. He didn't do anything about the fire. He let him go through the fire. You're going to pass through that fire and you're not going to be burned. The waters, he's going to pass through the waters, the divided waters, and the waters won't overtake you. I'm going to make a way where men say there is no way. Every issue, every difficulty, every situation that you face, the Lord has the answer. The Lord has a way where there is no way. you believe that? Yes. We are going to break out and end the service. You know why I didn't end the service? Because my watch stopped. That would probably be the reason. <laughs> Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May He give you peace in every way. And may you forever live within His favor. In Jesus' name, amen.